All right, Eastside, how we doing tonight? Good to see you. How were the burgers tonight? Yeah? Welcome, Eastside Online. I'm sorry, I don't have a burger for you that I can send you through the computer, but we are glad that you are watching us wherever you are, whenever you are. We love you. You're a big part of our church and our ministry. Thank you for tuning in. All right, so I know that a lot of you still don't know me really well, so I thought before I just started talking at you for 30 straight minutes, I ought to at least share a little bit about me. I'm not going to tell you my life story, but I want to share with you my testimony about how God called me into ministry. That'd be okay if I start there? All right. So this has been at least a 25-year journey for me of God calling me into ministry to be an ordained pastor. I mean, how does a guy that's been working at a bank for 31 years, I've got no Bible college experience, I got no seminary degree, and I'm standing up here preaching to you tonight? Only God, only God. And I really believe that God's been calling me into ministry since at least 1997 and maybe even further back. So that tells you that God must have had to do a lot of character shaping in me, or I'm a really slow learner, or both. I'm guessing that's both. So in the summer of 1997, I made the decision to get out of of the bleachers, to get off the sidelines, to get on the field, and get in the game spiritually. I had been a lukewarm, toe-in-the-water Christian that had fire insurance. But I was far from living my life with Jesus as Lord of my life. And that's when I made the decision that my relationship with God was gonna be the number one thing in my life. And I was gonna start living my life for Jesus each day. And then over the past 25 years or so, God has blessed me. He's given me so many opportunities to work in ministry as a lay person. So I've had a chance to preach a little, to teach and lead Sunday school classes, to lead small groups, counsel, to work, uh, may us walk some work, prison ministry. Well, each time I did those things, the more fulfilled that I felt. And the problem was then I had to go to the bank and the less and the less satisfied I was there. And I don't really think it had anything to do with the bank. I think that was part of God's calling on me. I mean, the the pay and the benefits were great where I was, but I would come home just thinking, the stuff that I'm doing is meaningless, especially in comparison to when I get to do ministry. But I think the thing that happened on January 6, 2003, was the driving force behind me coming into ministry. And that is the day that our son Noah was born. You guys know Noah, most of you. You've seen him in his wheelchair around here. Some of you good folks take care of him on Sunday mornings. Uh, You don't even know me. You just know I'm Noah's dad. You know Jennifer is Noah's mom, right? Noah's the star of our family, and we're perfectly okay with that. To say that Noah's birth was difficult is an understatement. He had been perfectly healthy throughout Jennifer's pregnancy. And it wasn't until the end of the delivery that things got dicey, but when Noah was delivered, he was not breathing. And he didn't breathe for 23 minutes. So we found out that he had severe brain damage and the doctors gave us little to no hope that he would live, not even a couple of hours. 
they immediately rushed him over to Cosair Children's Hospital. So the next day, I'm over at Cosair Hospital in the NICU at a sink, washing my hands for the 10th time that day. And I'm just crying and praying, because that's all I can do. And as I'm praying, I'm just saying, God, please, just let our son live. Just let him live. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Just let him live. And at the end of that, I added a line. And I said, I'll even give up my job and go into ministry. Now, that was a selfish prayer on my part because I was already feeling a tug from God to go into ministry, and I kind of had the desire to do that. Well, God rescued Noah, and he's come to Noah's rescue I don't know how many other times in his life. 19 years later, Noah is still here with us. Praise God. But I still had a promise to keep. I remembered what I told God at that NICU sink. How was I gonna make that happen? So late February of last year, I get an email from Eastside, my church where I've been a member for six years that changed everything. God opened a door for ministry for me in my own church. Now tell me that's not God. So I left my banking career behind, I went into ministry, and I'm standing it here before you getting ready to preach. So that's my short little testimony. All right, now I want to start with a modern day parable. This is just a story that I made up, okay? But you, every one of you is in the story, okay? You are the driver of the car in this story. So you're driving down a highway, and this truck comes over, and I mean just pulverizes you. But you're able to get your car off into the grass. You're not out in the highway anymore, but it, your, your car's just demolished. You can't get out of the car. There's smoke coming out of it. You can smell gas. Your car is going to blow up. There's a man driving behind you that has seen all of this. And he has already pulled his car over. He runs over to where you are, quickly assesses what's going on. He comes up to your window and he says, it's going to be okay. And you're like, no, it isn't going to be okay. My car's about to explode. Right around that time, he rips the door off the car. He scoops you up into his arms and he starts to turn like this. The car explodes. He's able to throw you on the ground about three feet away and cover you. And when he does, he shields you so that you live, but he dies. Right before he dies, he says, tell my family I love them and live a good life. You live. There's not a scratch on you. What would you do for this man that saved your life? What wouldn't you do for him? And how would you fulfill what he told you to do, to go live a good life? It's not hard to see Jesus as the man saving you in this story because that's what he did for us on the cross. But instead of saving our physical lives that are gonna end here someday, he saved us spiritually for eternity. If the man in my made-up story deserves honor, how much more honor does Jesus deserve for what he did for us? 
Now, I'm going to take all the suspense out of tonight. I'm going to tell you right now what I'm talking about. I've got one point that I want to make, and we're going to put it up on the screen now. This is what I want you to take away tonight. Honor Jesus with your life. Honor Jesus with your life. I know that's not real catchy, but that's where God laid my heart as I was putting this sermon together. So I want you to think about how can you live to honor Jesus with your life as we go on through this tonight. But I also want to think about how, I want you to think about how you dishonor him at times with how you live your life, especially when you treat his grace as a license to sin. Grace is costly and demands a godly response. And Jude, the author of the book that we're gonna talk about tonight, makes it clear that if you think that God's grace is a license to sin, that's just flat out ungodly and it's completely unacceptable. So with all of that, we are now to the fifth and final last little stick of dynamite. And we are in the book of Jude tonight. So just to do a quick review, there's 66 books in the Bible. Five of those books are only one chapter in length. We have looked at four of them. We had Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John. Tonight, we've got Jude. And this thing may only be one chapter, but man, it is dense. There is a lot of stuff in here. It's packed full of truth, warnings, history lessons, uh, insults to false teachers, which I love that part, a call to fight for and defend the faith and the directive that I've already mentioned to you, God's grace is not a license to sin. So before we get going too far in this, I wanna get, just give you a brief overview of the book of Jude. And when I go over the first point, you'll know why you need this overview. So here we go. Multiple sources that I researched agreed that Jude was probably the most neglected, overlooked, and least read book in the Bible, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament. So that's why I have to give you the review because most of you probably haven't read it. I thought about coming in here and saying, hey, you remember that verse in Jude where it talks about the dinosaurs and the roller coasters? And some of you'd be like, sure, yeah, I guess that's in there. I think one of the reasons that people haven't read Jude or haven't studied Jude is you don't know who Jude was. And that's very important. So, well, who was he? Well, let me start with who he wasn't, okay? This is not Hey Jude of the Beatles, okay? Just get it out of the way right now. We're not singing Hey Jude tonight. It's not Hey Jude. His name was actually Judas, which is a very common Jewish name in that time, and he shortened his name to Jude. Well, why would he do that? Do you want to be named Judas after what Judas Iscariot did? Nope, neither did Jude. Here's a big one. Jude's, Jude was Jesus' half-brother, so he grew up with Jesus. Did you know that? See, if you knew that, you may have wanted to read Jude. One of his brothers was James, and he mentions him in the very first verse of the book. We're going to look at that in a second. And this James is the same James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament. There are multiple references in the Gospels that Jude and James and Jesus' other brothers and sisters did not believe in Jesus until after his death and resurrection. Okay, they grew up with him. They saw him, they heard him, they didn't believe in him. 
Oh, it gets a little worse. The gospels also tell us they thought he was crazy and possibly demon possessed. So I want you to think about this. Jesus dies, he resurrects. He's on the earth for about, well, for 40 days before he ascends. Don't you think there's a good chance that, that Jesus popped in one morning when his brothers and sisters are at the kitchen table eating their fruity pebbles? And that's one of the things I learned in my research. They ate fruity pebbles back then, who knew? So they're eating their fruity pebbles and Jesus just materializes, poof. So they see him and Jesus sees them. Now, can, can you picture this? They didn't believe in him. So what's Jude gonna say to him? I mean, I'm trying to picture, my bad bro, didn't, didn't know. I mean, awkward, like watching The Office. And I know some of you love The Office. We know that Jude wrote this letter to Christians. And the reason we know that, if, as we read verse one, it'll be very clear, so I'm gonna read it to you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. You already know that part, I told you that. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. So it's obvious by this language that Jude was writing this to believers, but that's really all we know. We don't know who the believers were. These could have been Jews that believed in Christ, this could have been Gentiles, we don't know. Regardless, it was intended for all Christians 2,000 years ago and still is applicable today. This is another big one. Jude is the only book in the Bible devoted entirely to apostasy. Now, apostasy is a churchy word, so let me just give you a definition of this. Apostasy means the rejection of Christianity by someone who was formerly a Christian. So I'll let me use myself as an example. I believe in Christ, I've received Christ, I'm following Christ. Life starts happening and somewhere down the road, I lose my faith. I don't believe in Christ anymore and I go back to my old life before him. That's apostasy. And the Bible warns in a few places that there will be a great apostasy in the end times, that many people will leave the faith. And some leave because they incorrectly think that sin is okay now and it's no longer an issue. And then that sin pull, pushes them further and further and further away from God until they leave. And Jude addresses this in his, his letter. He's telling Christians, persevere, fight, stay in the game. And this last one, this is the most important in my little synopsis here. Why did Jude write this? Well, he wrote it for two main reasons. And the first one was to encourage believers to stand firm in the faith, the gospel, to earnestly fight for it. So let's look at verse three. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So in this verse, this translation, it uses the word contend. In a lot of translations, it's fight. But Jude meant a lot more than just fight. And I wanna give you a little explanation here. So Jude uses a Greek word here that's only used one time in the entire Bible, and it's right here, and you're gonna learn it. It's a six-syllable word. So listen to this and then follow with me. Apagonizomai. 
Now say that with me. Apagonizomai. You learned some Greek tonight. I don't know what you're going to do with that, but there you go. Now, this word meant to exert intense effort and was used to describe athletes striving for victory in a tournament or a competition, and it specifically was used when people were wrestling or fighting. Well, there was a more common Greek word that was used in the, the Bible that was agonizomai, and that's where we get our English word agonize. So that's the word that was normally used. If you know the verse where Paul's telling Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, that's just the normal fight. Jude is saying, I need you to fight on steroids. So I'm gonna give you an illustration. This helped me. How many of you have seen the movie A Christmas Story? Everybody's seen A Christmas Story. You have to see that to be a U.S. citizen. All right, so the kids are all out on the playground, Ralphie and all the kids, and they're around the flagpole. Everybody know the flagpole scene? They're daring Flick to stick his tongue to the flagpole to see if it sticks, right? And how's it start? I dare you. Okay, that was the normal word for fight, that dare. Then what happened? Well, I double dog dare you. And then what was the last one? The triple dog dare. Apogonizomai is triple dog dare. Jude is saying triple dog fight. I'm serious about this. So the second reason that Jude wrote this letter is to expose the false teachers that had snuck in and infiltrated in the church. And this is still happening today. So let's look at the first half of verse four. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people. Okay, so these certain individuals that Jude is talking about, they've already been predicted before Jude. Jesus talked about them, Paul talked about them, James and Peter. And all of them warned, look out for the false teachers, they're coming. And so Jude is repeating that warning, but he's also saying, they're here. I'm dealing with them right now. Folks, don't focus on the false teachers. That is not my point of what I'm trying to teach about tonight. What, what they taught or what they tried to teach, that's what my focus is. The false teachers and their followers, they wanted to eat, drink, and be merry, and live lives of complete sexual immorality, just doing whatever they want, and then not feel guilty about it, which explains why the, the second half of Jude's verse four reads this way. These people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality or sin and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. They were telling Christians, you don't have to honor Jesus with your life. Live, what, live life the way you want to live it. God's grace is abundantly available. Do what you want to do and then ask for forgiveness later. Sin and repent, sin and repent again, rinse, wash, repeat. As a Christian, if you're thinking it's okay to continually sin now that you've been saved and forgiven, you've completely missed the entire point of God's grace and you're asking the wrong question. Instead of thinking about yourself and what you want to do, ask the question, given what Jesus did for me, how can I live a life that honors him? And you know the answer to that question is to not live a consist in, in consistent, intentional sin. 
So that's our background of the book of Jude. Now what I wanna do is go through the Bible and just see what does God say about his grace and about how we can honor Jesus with our lives. And I'm actually gonna stay in Jude for the first part of this because in verse five, Jude references three Old Testament stories and his purpose of these stories is to tell us how to not live because these people did it wrong. All three of these stories end with judgment and disaster for the people. So the three stories that we're gonna look at, we'll just start with the first one in verse five. This is the Israelites in the wilderness. So God rescues the nation of Egypt, or the nation of Israel from Egypt. They make it through the Red Sea, they get across onto dry land. They're now less than two weeks away from the promised land. And if you know the story, how many years was it before they got there? 40. Two weeks, 40 years. By the time they get there, an entire generation has died off, except for two people. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb, actually stepped foot in the promised land. Why? Because they were rebellious, they were unbelieving, and they complained every step of the way. If I had been Moses leading those people, I would have Hulk smashed people every day. That's my first one. I like to say Hulk smash. That's my second one. So the second story that he shares is the angels who rebelled with Satan. And this is an interesting one. This is only mentioned here and in the book of 2 Peter in the Bible. So Jude mentions the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. In their punishment, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So did you know that there are fallen angels that are locked up in a prison dungeon somewhere? Should have read the book of Jude. You would have known that. And this is a reference to the fall of Satan. If you didn't know, Satan was an angel. He rebelled against God. And the Bible tells us that a third of the angels fell when he did. Why? Because they wanted to do things their way. They didn't want to do it God's way. They were guilty of pride, lust, and again, rebelliousness. And they paid the price. We will too if we live this way. And then the last story we're going to look at is Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities were so immoral for hundreds of years, and especially in regard to sexual immorality and perversion. In Genesis 19, we get the story that God rains, rains down from heaven burning sulfur on both of these cities, completely annihilates both cities. All the people die, all the animals die, all the vegetation dies. And Jude's warning, you live like this, this is what's gonna happen to you. Jude's reminder to us is to not live in rebellion against God. And if we live lives that dishonor Christ, thinking sin's okay because it's now been paid for, that's rebellion. And it makes a mockery of the cross and of Jesus' sacrifice for us. All right, let's move off of Jude. Let's go to Jude's brother. Let's, let's see what Jesus has to say. I mean, if we wanna live like Jesus, what's Jesus say? So John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Simple to understand, 
not so simple to do. But Jesus says, if you love me, obey me and obey my commands. Enough said. How about John the Apostle? We've spent the last two weeks talking about John, and we know that John was Jesus' best friend here on earth. Does he have something to say for us? Well, I liked this verse. This is from 1 John. This is how we know we are in him, in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus live? Sinless, perfect. How you doing with that? Yeah, me too. Now, we can't be sinless and we can't be perfect, but we should strive to live more like Christ every day of our lives. And we have to look at Paul. Does Paul have anything to say about this subject? Yeah, he's got a lot. That's why I saved him for last. And I'm just going to warn you, I'm about to hit you with a lot of Scripture. Paul informs us early on in the book of Romans that we have all sinned. Not some of us, not many of us, not most of us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Three chapters later, he then tells us the wages of sin. What's a wage? That's a paycheck. What we have earned with our sin is death. So if you think that all sin does is cause separation, it does that, but it causes death. And the only thing, the only thing that can save us is God's grace. This is my favorite verse in the Bible that deals with salvation, and I highly recommend you memorize this verse. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So even though we should live lives that honor God and we should do good works, these works cannot save us. I'm going to say that again. Our works cannot save us. It is God's grace that does that. But how do we say no to sin? Well, Paul addresses that in his letter to Titus. So let's look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. What teaches us? The grace of God teaches us. And what is it teaching us? It teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Through God's grace, we can learn to say no. Let's look at the next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, for them who died for them and was raised again. And my summary on that is put Christ first ahead of yourself, or as John the Baptist said, and I love this, I must become less, he must become more, Christ must become more. One last slide, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. So why do you wanna go back to the dead person that you used to be? 
Why do you want to go back to that old life living in sin? If you're a Christian, when you receive Christ and when you came up out of the water in your baptism and you received the Holy Spirit, God clothed you with a perfect, perfectly clean white robe. If you allow yourself to go back to that old life of sin, you're taking off that white robe and you're putting back on those filthy, dirty, grimy, stinky burial clothes that you died in. Why would you do that? But we do it at times, don't we? Here's the thing. God doesn't expect perfection from us. If he did, Jesus would have never had to come to earth and die for us. Even with God's grace, even with God's Holy Spirit, we still have our old sin nature inside of us. As a Christian, we have two people living inside of us, and they are at war with each other. They hate each other. Our flesh, his spirit. And I know I just read a verse that said, the old is gone, the new has come. Well, here's how I look at that. I'll use myself as an example. Old dude is still in here. I see old dude all the time. I see him all too often. And for whatever reason, my old dude has hair. I don't like him. I don't like his hair. You, your old dude or old gal is still in there. When it says the old is gone, that's when you're choosing the spirit instead of the flesh, when you're walking in the spirit. But that other person is still in there. And I know you know what I'm talking about. I hope this will encourage you. And this may be a little bit of misery loves company, but even Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and he's arguably the most influential and important person in the Bible besides Jesus, struggled with this very thing that I'm talking about. I'm going to read two passages for you. I'm not going to put them up on the screen. I just want you to listen. And as you listen, you're going to, you can tell that Paul knows how to do this when I read the first one. And this is from Romans chapter 6 verses one and two, and in my Bible, the subheading is dead to sin, alive in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, exclamation point. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay, that sounds pretty clear. Paul's got it figured out. Not so fast. Just because you know what to do doesn't mean that you do it. One chapter later in Romans, this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible, because I, th I guess it makes me feel a little bit more normal. This is what Paul has to say starting in Romans eight, uh, 7, 18. For I, know the good, for I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. What a wretched man I am. Does that sound like you?
because that sure sounds like me daily. And Paul wrote that. So think about that. If Paul struggles with that, it makes sense why we struggle that way. We have a choice. Are we going to live in his spirit or are we going to live in our flesh? And this isn't a one-time decision. This isn't a daily decision. This is a minute-by-minute decision. I picture it like this. We have a light switch inside of us. The good news and the bad news is we have access to it. When we choose to turn that switch on, we trust and obey God. We seek his will instead of our own. We don't give in to temptation, and we live a life that honors Christ. When we choose to turn that light off, we live and walk in our flesh. We call God a liar. He doesn't really know or want what's best for us. We deserve to be happy. We deserve to have all these things that our flesh want, and we deserve to have it now. We live our way in a way that dishonors Christ. Honestly, I wish I could just bust that light so that I couldn't turn it off, or I could figure out a way to cover it so that I could not get to it and turn it off. But God didn't create us to be robots. He created us with the ability to make choices, and unfortunately, we tend to make bad choices sometimes, just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, which led to sin entering the world and which also led to the sin nature that you and I now deal with. Remember that God loves us, and he wants the very best for us. So these laws and commands that he's given us we want to, that we want to break in pursuit of this life that we want to live. God gave us these laws and commands so that we could live our best life if we obey them. He gave these to us to protect us from hurting ourselves, hurting others, and hurting our relationships, all of which happen as a result of sin. And remember the cost. Don't ever forget the cost of God's grace. Jesus died for our sins. And I want you to think about what happened to him the 18 hours before he died. He was flogged, he was beaten, he was spit on, he was punched, he took the crown of thorns, he was betrayed. Then he took the nails. Go back further. He was in heaven with his father, in, in heaven, and had to leave heaven because of our sin. And his assignment when he came here was to what? To die. So when I say God's grace is costly, it didn't cost you and me anything, but what did it cost our Father? Grace is the most expensive thing in the world. So what do we do? I can't tell you, okay, everybody, stop sinning. Knock it off. All right, let's go eat. Let's go home. I mean, I could do that, but it's not gonna work. It hadn't worked for me. Don't you wish it was that easy? Well, how do we do this? How do we make sure that we honor Jesus with our lives and that we don't dishonor him by going back to our old sin patterns? Well, let's just look at what scripture told us tonight. Obey Jesus and his commands. Always remember the price of God's grace. God's grace teaches us to say no to our flesh. Live for Christ not yourself. 
You are a new creation. Don't go back to being the old dude or the old gal. Choose his spirit, not your flesh. And this last one, this is the most important one. You can't do this without his spirit. You can't. Here's how important the Holy Spirit is. In Scripture, Jesus tells us that it is good that he is going away because unless he goes away, we will not receive the advocate. The Holy Spirit will not come. Jesus himself says, it's better for me to be physically gone so that you can receive the Holy Spirit that's gonna live inside of you. Jesus knew what we needed to live a life that would honor him. Without his spirit, it is impossible to live that life. So the teaching point that I've tried to hit over and over and over tonight, we're gonna look at it again, honor Jesus with your life. If I had to summarize how to do this, this is what I would say. Obey Jesus, remember the cost, and keep your light switch, your spirit switch on. One more minute, we're done. I wanna go back to the story I started with of the man that rescued you from the exploding car. I want you to think about the first time that you get home after that happens in the embrace that you have with your spouse when you get in that door and with your kids and with your grandkids and your family and your friends and loving on your pets. I want you to think about next, the next morning you wake up and you know you're alive, you survived, but that man didn't. Do you remember what he told you? Tell my family I love them, live a good life. Think about how badly you would wanna live your life for this man who saved you. Imagine the duty and commitment that you would feel to live your life in a way that brings honor to this man's memory. After this, if you live for yourself, a sinful, selfish, wasted life, that would bring dishonor to this man's memory and it would be a tragedy, almost a crime. Jesus died for all of our sins. And if we turn our backs on him and go back to our lives before Christ, that is a horrible crime. Tell my family I love them. Jesus on the cross right before he died said these words, it is finished. He perfectly completed his mission. And I know the words that he said were it is finished. But inside of those words, one of the things that Jesus was saying is, I love you, I love you. He loved you enough to die for you. Now show him your appreciation for the greatest gift that you will ever receive and honor Jesus with your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word I thank you for the instruction that it gives, the life that it gives us. I thank you for the brave men like Jude that were willing to speak the truth even when they faced persecution. Most of all though, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross and I ask you to forgive each one of us for the times that we've taken your grace for granted, when we've made a mockery of your grace or we've just drug it through mud puddles. Lord, forgive us. We just thank you so much 
for the gift of your son, Jesus. Help each one of us to go out of here tonight and to live lives that honor Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.